Uh, so the first reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 20 to 23. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. And then uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown to the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I'm going to pray for us as John comes up. Heavenly Father, may your word be planted deeply in our hearts and bear much fruit, fruit that will last. May it fill us with the joy of knowing your gospel, the wonder of knowing Christ and the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Hey family, so good to be here with you all. We are going to continue our series in Strange People in Luke chapter 12. But before we do, I thought, oh, I'll show you some snaps from our new church family. There's a few snaps there. Um, and there's some from last week when the Reeds kindly visited us and hung out with us for a, for a morning. It's really nice. Um, God's been really good. And every single one of these people and their lives and their stories is evidence of God's goodness to us. Um, so we're deeply grateful for what's been happening and the way that God's been working. Um, our focus really has been, over the last month or so, is building a deep, a deeper connection with God and with one another. And so that's what we're trying to create and facilitate every time we gather. Um, and so there's kind of like a, uh, a two-week rotation. So week one is like we, we gather around in our living room and have a more sort of typical service. Um, and after, at the end of the service, we meet in groups of threes and fours, and we talk about how that scripture connects with our lives and what God is speaking to us through his word and by the spirit. Uh, and on the alternate weeks, we gather around the table and share some food together, share a meal together, again, gathering around God's word um, and asking questions and uh, trying to understand what is God saying, what is God speaking to each of us where we're at, and what does God want to speak to us as a community, and how does he want to form us? Um, so that's what's been happening. It's been really encouraging just to hear the conversations, uh, for me anyway, really encouraging for me to hear the kinds of conversations that people have been having. So we're really grateful to God for that, and really grateful to God that we're here today. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get stuck into Luke. Thanks, Father, for your goodness to us for your provision. Thank you that it's true that everything that we've needed, your hand has provided. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful. And so please, Lord, through your power and through the work of your spirit, give us grace so that we can live faithfully to you who has been so generous to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, throughout this series, we have been exploring how Jesus wants his followers to see and to live in the world. And like I mentioned, we're talking about this topic of strange generosity today. And we can be tempted, actually, to think that Jesus condemned all kinds of wealth, you know, being the social justice warrior that he was. Maybe you might even think that he calls every single one of his followers to take a vow of poverty. You could even read verse 33 from Luke 12 that way, right? Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. But the more we read the Gospels, actually, we realize that Jesus didn't exclude the rich. He didn't exclude the wealthy. He regularly spent time with them, dined with them, hung out at their houses, spoke to them about the things that were important to them. And what he was fixated on was calling them into the kingdom of God. His ministry was actually supported and funded by a handful of pretty wealthy um, patrons who supported him and his merry band of disciples as they wandered the Judean wilderness preaching the gospel. What Jesus is concerned about, though, what he talks about time and time again is the danger of wealth and materialism and how these things can erode your soul and destroy your flourishing with God. And as Andrew so wonderfully preached for us last week, right? True riches are only found in Jesus and in the reality of his kingdom. That 
is the great treasure. And the view that Jesus took, and the view that actually Jesus wants us as his followers to take today, is that all we have and all we are comes from and belongs to God. All we have, all we are, comes from and belongs to God. And it's out of that conviction that Jesus himself didn't view his own life as too precious, but instead submitted it to the Father, laid it down for the sake of the world. And it's out of that same conviction that radical, strange generosity flows out of our lives as God's people, lives that are rich towards God and rich and generous towards others. And so with that perspective in mind, there's uh, three actions that I think Jesus calls us to through Luke 12 today. They're this. Number one, to watch out. Number two, to be rich towards God. Number three, to seek his kingdom. Watch out, be rich toward God, and seek the kingdom. Let's start with watch out. So our story begins in Luke chapter 12 with um, Jesus surrounded by a crowd. Some of his disciples there, but there's a whole bunch of other people there as well. And while he's teaching, a random guy in the crowd calls out to him and he says, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And from what historians tell us, we can be pretty sure and pretty confident that the majority of the crowd around Jesus were living paycheck to paycheck some just with enough to meet their day-to-day needs, and others were probably going hungry. And so when we think about this guy who kind of rudely interrupts Jesus, right, we can probably imagine that money is a live issue for him, and he probably felt like he needed more to survive. He was probably hoping that Jesus would help him to get his hands on more with a favorable judgment. Maybe you're here and struggling financially. Maybe you're feeling the pinch. Or maybe if you stopped for long enough to think about it, you've got more than enough. Wherever you find yourself, doesn't this feeling of scarcity well up within us time and time again? You know, businesses and corporations, they feed on this, actually. Social media, it fuels it. And even our own inner propensity towards comparison, it leaves us feeling like, oh, I need more. And who can blame you, right? The cost of living is on the rise. Interest rates are going up again and rents probably with it. And it's totally understandable that we would be here feeling fearful and anxious and worried. But there's this trap here. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples to watch out, to be on their guard. There's a trap because our bodies and our brains are programmed to survive, to perceive threats and to respond, right? That's the whole fight, flight or freeze thing at work. And our modern life, it shields us from um, most of the life-threatening dangers that are out there, like you're not having to worry about a saber-toothed tiger coming out and you having to fight it off to survive on your way home from church tonight, right? But still, our brains are wired to perceive and respond to threat. Why we need to be watchful is this. Our responses to threats aren't always proportional or rational. That's why we need to be on our guard, says Jesus. Let me give you a live example, right? Say you're at work, 
in your cubicle, if you work in a cubicle, wherever you work, and say there's a backstabbing colleague. You know, someone just really doesn't like you for some reason. Don't know what you did to that person, but re they really have it out for you. And they're spreading gossip and slander throughout the whole office. And that the threat of that person might just be enough to get you to catastrophize and overreact. You might think, oh, because of what they're saying about me, I'm not going to get that promotion. And I know the interest rates are on the rise, and so that's going to go up. I'm not going to be able to pay for that. Oh, then we might lose the house. And if I lose the house, then my spouse is probably going to leave me because they're upset at me for whatever reason, for not being able to provide for our family. And then I'm going to be all alone. I'm going to end up on the street in the dumps, and then I'll probably die from hypothermia, right? Like, you could go there, right? And that's our brains overreacting to a threat that's not really there. And so Jesus tells us as his people, be on your guard, be careful, be watchful, be aware of what is happening in your heart and in your mind and in your body. Whether scarcity is real or perceived, we've got to be watchful. And what does Jesus want us to watch out for? Verse 15, we need to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because life is about more than just an abundance of possessions. Greed and material things, they're complicated, right? Because things aren't just things. Things are a way for us to get status, to feel as though we're making progress as people. They're a way for us to distract and to comfort ourselves from the pressures of life. Things are a way for us to seek that elusive sense of security and stability in our lives. But we need to be watchful and understand how our hearts work. Greed is complex because we as human beings are complex. Be on your guard, Jesus says. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And we read this later on in what Jesus says. Greed will rob you of your contentment, of your joy, of your peace. It will lead you to compromise on the principles and the values that Jesus embodied and taught. Greed will do all of that. So let's come back to the context, to the people around Jesus. Imagine you were living paycheck to paycheck. Imagine you were a farmer, farming the land. And actually the land that you were farming belonged to a wealthy landowner. And what they did was they charged you rent on the land that you were farming and then took a cut of your crops. That's what was happening for most of Jesus' audience. That's probably the situation they were in. And so you can imagine the kind of visceral response they might have to Jesus' parable, right? Here is this rich landowner whose land yields such a huge harvest that his current barns can't contain all of the harvest that's being brought in. Sounds like he's got more than enough for himself and for his family. So what should a person in that situation do? Maybe he should do a better job at supporting the people that work his land. Maybe he should give some away to the poorest and the neediest in their community. Or maybe just at a minimum, he should just express some gratitude towards God. But what does Jesus say in the parable? What does he decide to do? Fueled by greed, he undertakes a building project, right? Tears down his barns and builds bigger ones. 
And verse 19 gives us an insight into the motive of his heart. What does this man want? He wants to be able to reassure himself that he's got enough stored away so that he can take it easy, so he can eat and drink and be merry for the rest of his life. And in a culture that idolizes the Australian dream and financial security, maybe this parable hits a little bit too close to home. Let's look to verse 20. What does God have to say about this man? He calls him a fool. Throughout the scriptures, and particularly in Proverbs, a fool is someone who either directly rebels against God and his ways, or someone who, whose life is lived denying God's existence altogether. While the rich man is foolishly soothing himself with his bank balance, God demands his life from him and his fortune is left for someone else. In verse 20, the word demanded, it carries with it a sense of something that's actually being required back from someone, something that was due, something that was on loan, right? And what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, actually, that this man's life was not his own, that all he had and all that he was belonged to God. But his greed revealed that he had a rebellious attitude towards God, showing that he actually ultimately believed that an abundance of wealth and possessions would bring him into true life, good life. And his actions denied God's existence and authority over all he had, even over his own life. What he failed to recognize was that his life and all that he had was not his own came from God and belongs to him. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to realize and to confess that all we are and all we have comes from God and belongs to him. And this is really hard. I get that and I feel that. It's hard because in our society, we are being told that nothing and nobody has the authority over you other than yourself. But if God is real, and if he truly does exist, then it means that there is a God who made us, who formed us, who cares for us. And it also means that there is a higher authority that we are accountable to. And so Jesus says, be on your guard, be watchful. Know the inner workings of your heart. Are you prone to greed? I wonder what is our desire to gain more wealth say about what we believe will bring us true life? You know, part of the challenge in wrestling with this text is remembering that Jesus' audience were mostly living just on or below the poverty line. And so a serious question for us as disciples of Jesus, whether we be rich or poor, is this. We've got to ask, how much is enough? How much do I really need? Time and time again in Jesus' teaching, we see that God doesn't just care about what you do. He also cares. He cares even more deeply, actually, about the motive of your heart. And so Jesus' command to be watchful challenges us to dig beneath the surface and understand what's really driving us. 
And so rather than being selfish and greedy and hoarding for ourselves, what does Jesus call his disciples to do? Well, he says they should be rich towards God. What does that even mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, One commentator puts it this way. He says, to be rich toward God means responding to life and blessing in ways that God desires, in ways that honor him through service and compassion. And so humbly recognizing that all we are and all we have is from God means that there are some implications for how we live. Right? And this is the perfect moment for Jesus to heap on the religious guilt. Perfect time. Right? You guys are going to be giving more. You've got to be doing more. You've got to be trying harder. And I could totally do that too. Right? Um, but Jesus is a better teacher than me, um, and he's a better savior than me. And he, what does he do? He reads the room. He knows that the people around him are living paycheck to paycheck. They're struggling to make ends meet. They can barely put food on the table. And he knows, he knows for us, he knows our situation too. He knows that cost of living is through the roof. He knows that there are so many people in our city feeling the pinch. He knows, like what we read in Ecclesiastes 2, that so many of us are caught up in this cycle of anxious striving, not knowing if we can ever have or be enough. He knows the restlessness of your mind and my mind in the dark of night as we try to cling onto some sort of source of security that seems more like a morning mist rather than a firm foundation. Jesus knows. He knows the struggle. He knows their struggle and he knows ours. He knows the barriers to us being rich towards God. So what does he say? What does he respond with? He reassures his disciples that even in the midst of their insecurity and fear and anxiety, that God does not forget them, that he will not neglect them. Remember the strange reality from last week. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. Jesus tells his disciples that they don't need to be like Israel, hoarding manna for themselves in the desert. They don't need to be riddled with anxiety as they strive to build up bigger barns for themselves and neglecting compassion and justice. In the meantime, and we don't have to either. Why? Because God cares for us. Jesus repeats himself in verse 23 life is about more than food and drink and clothing. And fear and anxiety might cause us to obsess over these things. But Jesus says, Consider the birds of the air, they don't sow or reap, and yet your Father cares for them. How much more valuable are you? than some birds. He says, look at the flowers of the field. Look how they are clothed. Not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like one of them. How much more will your father clothe you? God cares for them all. And he cares for us all. Does God know that you and I and our families need food and drink and shelter? Absolutely he does. And the healing antidote to our anxiety is found in verse 32. What does Jesus say? He says, don't be afraid, little flock. Your father, for your father, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Let's meditate on these words for a minute. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
How are our anxieties relieved? How can we overcome the fear of scarcity? Well, first, Jesus refers to his disciples affectionately as the little flock. All who follow Jesus, everyone who follows him belongs to God. And Jesus is the great shepherd who will care and provide for his flock. And more than that, he is the great shepherd who protects his flock and provides for them by laying down his life for them. This is how God has given you and I the kingdom, through Jesus. And unlike the man, the rich man who selfishly hoards for himself, Jesus shows us God's generosity as he lavishes the riches of God's grace and mercy upon us. He died on the cross mercifully to save us from the fear and foolishness of greed and all of its consequences. And as he was raised to life, God vindicated the way of Jesus as the way to true and abundant life. And anyone who follows Jesus by faith, we're given the Holy Spirit to live in us as a deposit, proving that we belong to God. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And we're not just God's flock, we're his children. And we belong to him in the same way that any one of my kids belongs to my family. And we're going to talk more about our strange family next week, so stay tuned for that. But for now, if you have children, parents, don't you love to give your kids good things? Grandparents, even more so, and then you give them back to their parents and then you don't have to deal with it? You know, aunts and uncles, don't you, doesn't it delight you to bring a smile to a child's face. And God is an infinitely better parent than we are. He's an infinitely better father than I am. Even at the cost of his own life, God is pleased, Jesus says. He is delighted to give us the kingdom. He doesn't give it begrudgingly. He doesn't regret it. He's not hesitant in giving the kingdom. He's pleased to give us a place in his kingdom. Why? Why does he do this? Because where your treasure is, Jesus says in verse 34, there your heart will be also. God treasures his children. He treasures you. And so how can we, as followers of Jesus, be free from the fear and anxiety of scarcity? comes by knowing that God has already given us the greatest treasure in his son, the kingdom. And so we can be confident, actually, that since God has already given us heaven's best, he will withhold nothing that we need from us. He knows what we need, and he will joyfully meet our needs. And with God as our Father, Jesus says, we don't have to live in worry or fear. And this is the foundation for a life where we gladly confess that all we have and all we are comes from God. And his generous character, seen through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that is the foundation for the life of God's people. Our strange generosity rests upon the generous nature of God. Okay. So we need to be on our guard watching out for all kinds of greed, right? We need to be rich toward God. And so it naturally leads us to ask the question, well, what does that look like? 
Well, Jesus' answer there is this, to seek the kingdom, right? Um, and the, this word for, for seek in, in the Greek, it means more than just to look for something like you lost your keys around the room or something like that. You know, it, it, more accurately, it means to um, dedicate effort to pursuing something or striving in order to take hold of something, right? And more than just seeking to get a ticket into heaven, um, seeking and striving for the kingdom means reflecting the nature of our king and living out his values in everything that we think and we say and we do. And this is totally different from the anxious, striving, and restless labor that, that leads to hoarding and greed. It's different because scarcity and fear aren't the things driving that behavior. God's generous character is the foundation for the grateful life of his people. Through Jesus, God has given us the kingdom, and so we strive to honor our king and live out his values. So how can we do that? Well, Jesus gives us a tangible picture of what that looks like in verse 33. Since God has given us the kingdom, he says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. It's tough for us to sit with Jesus' challenge. Even tougher when we remember his audience, people who were on the cusp of poverty. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have stashes of money lying around. In fact, that was incredibly rare in those times. If they had any sort of excess, any sort of surplus, it would have been in material assets. Maybe, you know, like a spare fry pan or a new, uh, like a spare jacket or an extra chair that they didn't need sitting in the house. What does Jesus instruct his listeners to do? Liquidate your assets, he says, and give the proceeds to the poor. Where you have excess, Think about how you can use that to honor God and serve others. That's what Jesus says to his listeners. And God doesn't call the foolish man, the rich man, sorry, foolish because he stores up grain to provide for himself or for his family. Right? He calls him foolish because his hoarding is godless and selfish. God isn't against your needs and your family's needs being met. He actually knows your family's needs and he provides for them. Right? He'll provide for your needs through the skills and gifts and talents he's given you, through the work opportunities that he opens up and through your family, biological and spiritual. God provides for our needs and actually he calls us through scripture to be faithful stewards of the things that he's given us. Right? He calls us to be diligent but he also calls us to use the things that he's given us to bless and to serve those around us because that is what he does. Everything we are, everything we have comes from him. And so let me ask a few questions of us this afternoon. Where is there surplus in your life? Where is there excess? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's resources Maybe there's some expertise there. Or maybe, most precious of all, maybe you have time. Where is the surplus in your life? And what would it look like for you to take those things and to present them before God? And to say, God, what do you want to do with this? 
What would it sound like for us as brothers and sisters to have that open conversation together, to say, hey, what do you guys think it could look like for my life? You know, the reality often is that the poorest people are also the most generous. Why? Because life has taught them that life isn't found in an abundance of possessions. The poor and the needy, they cling to God and His goodness in ways that the well-off struggle to get our heads around. And so perhaps a starting point for us today is just simply admitting that we struggle with this fear of scarcity. Maybe just sharing that with a brother or a sister that you trust or with someone from your household. And then from there, bravely seeking wisdom and healing together. Or maybe you're here and you actually have practical needs. Maybe you could open up, take a step of faith and ask for help. God knows what you need and maybe he's ready to have that need met through one of your brothers or sisters here. And so as families, as households, as a family of faith, let's talk honestly about the surplus that we have and how God might be calling us to use those things for his glory and for the good of the people around us. Let's carve out time to have that conversation as a family. Often we talk about these things on a Sunday and then it never makes it to Monday. What would it look like for us to make this a priority and to hear Jesus' words and his call? Imagine if we stopped viewing time and talents and treasures as our own, but gifts from a good God, a good Father, to be stewarded and given for the sake of others. Imagine we could be a community that was so secure in God's goodness and the goodness of his kingdom that we could freely give out of our surplus to anyone who had need. Wouldn't that be a strange and beautiful witness to the God who has given us the kingdom and everything else that we need in Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness and your generosity toward us, particularly in Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness made available to us through the cross. We thank you for the new life that's now available to us in Jesus, that that same resurrecting power that was at work within him is now at work within us. And so, Father, lead us by your Holy Spirit so that we will know what to do with the things that you have given for us to steward with our time, with our resources, with our abilities and our capacities. Help us to honor you and to work with all of our strength and all that we have for the good of the world around us. We ask that you might do this so that your name and your name alone might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Pete's gonna come and continue to lead us in prayers. Thanks, Pete.